Hi, I'm April Klimkevich. And I'm Amanda McClooney, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories from women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Our guest today is Dr. Francoise Sadim, a neuroscientist and assistant professor at the College of Staten Island, Helene Fold School of Nursing, and Wagner College. Francoise attained her PhD in neuroscience at the Graduate Center, CUNY, in New York. Francoise currently lectures and teaches extensive skills employed in the field of biology and neuroscience. Francoise is the founder and president of ICARUS Global Science, a program dedicated to providing academic advancements, mentorship, and research opportunities to high school students in the STEM discipline. Dr. Sadim is also the co-founder of a sister company called Pre-Med Pro, a program that offers pre-med high school students training skills in the field of medicine. Welcome, Francoise. Thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so happy I'm here as well. To get us started, Francoise, can you tell us a bit about your academic journey and how you decided to become a neuroscientist? Yes, oh, I'd love to. Um, so my academic path starts just like a typical student who's trying to go to medical school by enrolling in a four-year college. So I went to the College of Staten Island, CUNY, as an undergraduate in their pre-med program. I wanted to become a doctor and specialize in neurosurgery. So the first step that I did was I took a biology class. And when I walked into the classroom, I saw all these students scattered all over the place. First thing I said to myself was I was going to sit at the front and make sure that the people there will be my best friends because I knew that they were studious, they paid attention. And most importantly, if I forgot anything or I didn't show up for class that particular day, I could always call them so that I could get help and uh, we could help each other. So uh, one of the lucky things I found was that those group of students were actually going for a medical path as well, because sometimes some students will take electives and um, they're not interested in doing medicine because it's just the requirement that they need to take. So I just lucked out that they were also on the same path. So we basically buddied up together and we started that journey. Now, it was extremely competitive because a lot of students in there as well, we're trying to become medical students. And from what we were told then, the professor would only issue X amount of A's. So we knew that we had to work really, really hard to make sure that we're the ones that got the A's because we wanted our transcripts to be so great that if we applied to medical school, we'd be able to get accepted. What I then learned after obviously research of making sure that we, uh, we were A students was the fact that we had to do other additional extracurricular activities in order for us to become successful. And one of them required doing research in a laboratory. So I decided to take that on and I went to see this chemistry teacher and I enrolled in this um, sort of chemistry course that required synthesizing these nanochips using uh, streptavidin quantum dots. So I was excited by the whole idea and I brought on a few of my friends in the same field and we started working on that particular project. Now, the research went so well, I mean, remarkably so well, that I ended up getting a publication as an undergrad, and I think in my sophomore year, which normally isn't the case for most students. I got pretty lucky early on. So what ended up happening is that the professors approached me and said, well, would you like to continue working on research and seeing where it could actually take you? So I thought, well, if medical school requires that I do more research work and get more publication in order for me to look much more competitive, then why not? So I joined another lab at the same time, which is a biology lab, and we ended up working together on additional projects. That led me 
to another project in John Hopkins. So that was one of the great parts of my research career because I ended up going to this Ivy League school where I could see research being done on a whole different level as well. So I was exposed to all these scientists that were writing these neuroscience Bibles, for lack of a better word. And what ended up happening is that being exposed to them gave me this idea that I could be just like them. I could be even better, right, by basically trying out these different avenues in different campuses and grabbing whatever skill sets that I could, as much as I could, so that I could make myself much more successful. So, of course, I missed New York at the time when I was actually doing uh, my work in John Hopkins at my master's level. So I decided to come back to New York and enroll in a PhD at the Graduate Center in CUNY. So I started to work with these amazing mentors, Dr. Bessel Maladrisi and Dr. Lamerol, and they're really at the forefront of research in neuroscience. So as I worked with them, they presented this project to me and they said, well, would you like to work on plasticiders and look and see whether they actually affect brain activity? So at the time, we had this huge topic that was popping up around the world that we shouldn't heat up food on plastic plates in the microwave. Everyone was so worried because they felt like, well, if we do that, maybe we could get autism or our kids could get autism. So I decided, well, I should just do exactly that. I should investigate that. And I did. And that was the best thesis project I've ever done because I was able to look and see what actually happens when you give this particular um, solvent called DBP, it's called dibutophthalate, in the family of uh, bisphenol A, BPA. So I was able to see what actually happens to the brain and the endocrine system when people are exposed to it. But most importantly, in mice, because that's where my studies were taking place. Now, because my research is still in the line of getting published, and obviously I don't want to give out too much information, what I ended up finding was that we did see such a great effect in the pathways, for example, in the molecular structures. Bottom line is that the mice were exhibiting characteristics of autism. So at the end- Oh my gosh. Francoise, what miraculous research. That's amazing. Yes. So, yes. So I was really, really excited um, at that research because I felt like I could give information at least to the world, showing them that maybe they're not wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be heating up food on plastic plates and, you know, we should maybe take glassware, for example. And the sad part about it is that, so the whole idea is that it actually softens plastic and this is why you can mold plastic bottles or plastic plates toys, for example. The other thing too is that it's used as a softener in makeup. So a lot of women in their childhood bearing years tend to use a lot of makeup. And what's found basically is that this DBP crosses the skin, goes into the bloodstream and basically goes to all these organs. And especially in the placenta or the uterus where your baby is, and they basically can get exposed to it. So my studies just showed that after the babies were exposed, to it, we did find levels in the brain. We found the levels in the mom as well. And, and the, this is in mice, of course. And obviously, like I stated earlier on, that we saw that their neural behavior was affected. We also injected it in mice that exhibit the autism type of disorder. These mice are called fragile X mice. So they're like the mice that represent autism. And we saw that when we gave them this drug, the mice behaved even worse. You know, so a mouse who's already um, exhibiting autistic-like uh, behavior behaving worse than they already were. So all collectively, what I'm trying to say basically is that this path of going from university to university, working on 
great research, having great role models, gave me that sense that I could become a neuroscientist. I could remain and guide others in this particular field so that we're able to give the world knowledge or expose the world to great ideas and further science in the long run. It sounds like help people as well. Let them know about things that are going on in their homes and in their lives that might make them a little bit safer. Correct. Absolutely. Of course, these studies are conducted in mice. And eventually, if you want to basically align it to humans, you would have to look at these studies in humans. But normally, these studies give you an indication of what could happen in humans. And that's what makes it so exciting is that at least we could keep pushing forward and seeing whether this could have the same effect actually in humans. What a lot of wonderful (laughs) research that you were able to be exposed to starting in undergrad and then moving throughout your career. That's really exciting. Employers want to employ somebody who's all-rounded, who can do many other things and bring X amount of skills to their company. So this is what we decided early on as undergraduate students, that this is what we need to do. Equip ourselves with all these skills, go to laboratories, do all this work so that we could make ourselves stand out. And I guess it's been beneficial in other ways as well, because you might expose yourself to a completely different line of work than you even knew was out there. I mean, when we're young, of course, we know about doctors. And so we're aware of pre-med, but you had no idea probably of the depth of the neuroscience work that you would eventually get into at that time when you started at your first lab. Agreed. Yes. Um, I think that guidance as well is extremely important because when you start, when I first started, especially because Staten Island is predominantly Italian, especially College of Staten Island. So as a minority, I had to navigate different paths in order for me to find my way. It was tough to figure it out at first because obviously I didn't know anybody. So eventually by buddying up with other people who were like me or individuals who were also pursuing the same path, I was able to get ideas from others and, uh, you know, and they, they'll tell you, well, you should be doing this at this stage or you should be joining a lab. And, th- and this is why later on I decided I would start creating this program that could help other individuals do that because I struggled early on just trying to navigate those parts by myself. But luckily, I sort of stumbled across the right people at the right time and they were able to guide me and help me you know, through this, this process. The right mentors are so important. Correct. Yes, absolutely. It seems like with all of that support, you've been able to move in a lot of different directions. You're looking to create an educational institution to get kids more involved in science. So can you share with us your vision for this project? Absolutely. Because of my journey or what I went through before, I decided that I had to set up a program that could actually help students so they wouldn't feel lost or on their own. And the way this program actually came about was I would actually teach at the universities at the college level. And when I would teach biology or other science related material, I found that a lot of students were struggling earlier on with the basics or the foundation. But I thought, well, why not start from the beginning? Why not grab the students early on at the high school level and see whether we could solve that problem then? And then when they come to the college level, they could come in much better prepared, equipped, and that they're able to hit the floor running. So this is how I came about putting together Icarus Global Science. So the idea of this particular program is that it's designed to substantially increase the number of high school students in the STEM discipline. And when I mean STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, for example, with a huge focus, of course, on underrepresented minorities. 
I said, well, I'll create this program that will teach kids how to become scientists. I'll offer them academic advancement. I'll mentor them in all the steps. But alongside that as well, I could offer them opportunities for workshops in research. Because at the end of it, again, getting that 4.0 is not enough. You have to do other things around it so that you make yourself competitive. Parents who had kids in private high schools, they had the blueprints already. They knew exactly the paths their kids should take in order for them to be successful. But what about the parents who don't have that blueprint? So I decided to be their blueprint by offering them the same information that the other parents are offered and teaching them that their kids need to be doing X, Y, and Z in order for them to be successful. So I took on or I've taken on that role as the parent with the blueprint so I could guide these students to become successful, so we could bridge them from the high school level to finally becoming doctors and scientists that they were meant to be in the first place. Alongside that, as you pointed out with the pre-med pro, I started a sister company. So I co-founded it with a friend of mine, Dr. Christine Bishara, and we designed pre-med pro for the students who just specifically want to become doctors. We try to prepare them in subject matter SATs, for example. We prep them in MCATs or GREs. These things are important as well because we've taught the students the coursework. We've taught them the research. We've given them opportunity to try out skills. We take them to facilities where they could basically do internships, volunteer, for example. Now the last part would be preparing for interviews so they could get either into medical school or into college. So the idea is to build that all-rounded individual, all-rounded student who has done absolutely everything, has 4.0 GPA, aces the MCATs, aces the ACTs, and increases their chance of actually getting into these um, excellent colleges that are there. And then eventually making it down to that terminal degree of either being a PhD or a doctor. I love that you, Francois, noticed a need in your local scientific community and you took it upon yourself to kind of say like, how can I help bridge the gap between what's missing in their high school education and getting them prepared to be part of the scientific community? So kudos to you because that's a huge undertaking. And there's so many people who, even if they saw where maybe there was a gap in between, not a lot of people would have taken it upon themselves to actually put a program in place to help bridge that gap. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I think I, I feel like I need to give back because I've also been helped through that journey as well. I decided to take on this responsibility because I noticed that there were a lot of students who were actually struggling. And once upon a time, I was that student that was trying to navigate this entire campus and I couldn't figure out where to go, who to talk to. And I needed some guidance. I needed someone who could tell me this is the blueprint. This is what you should be doing. And this is how you go about doing it. As a result, you know, of course, this is how I came up with Icarus. But when I looked at my community, and of course, Staten Island has a huge minority community as well, with students going to the College of Staten Island as well, I decided that I needed to support these populations in some type of way. Now, when I was actually going through my undergrad and my master's right through to PhD, I joined a program called the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation, abbreviated LSM, and the C-STEP program. These programs are there to substantially increase the number of minorities or unrepresented minorities in the STEM discipline at the college level. So the design and the setup of the LSM program at the time was run by these two individuals, two doctors, Dr. Claude Brathwaite and Dr. Neville Parker. 
Now, these were two minority scientists who really changed the way that I view science and how I help individuals. Here you have these two minorities, these two individuals who want the best for you. I'm where I am right now because of those programs, because I had individuals like that and mentors like that who were constantly on top of me, making sure that I did what I was supposed to do on my end. Well, I decided if these individuals help me out, I should return the same favor back to other students behind me. So the same programs I applied to, I wanted other students to do it because I saw the benefits of doing that program and what it did for me. So at some point I had to apply for a scholarship between Austria and the US in Austria, and I was able to secure that scholarship. So I took on the role to advise students in terms of applying for this scholarship as well. I would look at their applications. I'll tell them, this is what you need in order to be successful. You have to have this content. I'll review their personal statements and I'll become an integral part of their applying process. And every single year, I was always successful. What I ended up doing too was I would run to their homes and pick up that application because I knew the deadline was the next day. So I drove in the middle of the night and so I could get to her home. And there I am in the middle of the night receiving this package from the student and you have people watching you and wondering, what, you <laughs> right? like, what, you know, what could you possibly be giving somebody at nine o'clock at night? <laughs> but when, I, when I look back and I look at this student right now, she's just about to finish her PhD and she, she wants to be just like me. She tells me every single time, I want to be just like you. I want to follow the same steps that you have. And I like the fact that you've got me into that program. But that, it, was, it was imperative for me to get her in because if I didn't get that application in the following day, she wouldn't have gotten in. She wouldn't have been on this path where she's at. So what I'm trying to say basically is that I try to give back what I've received from other people, from other mentors, from my trials and errors back to other students who don't have role models or who don't have people who can guide them or who just lost. Right? So I want to give them the same so that they could be equally successful and get to the stage where we all have and get our PhDs and doctorates. Switching gears just a bit, Francoise, you know, one of the things when, when anyone thinks about the world of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, I think it's well known that there's not always a lot of women in the STEM field. So can you talk to us a little bit about anything that has helped you navigate being a woman in the sciences? Yes, that's, that's always a question. That's actually interesting. Um, interestingly, my path has always been surrounded by men because neuroscience itself has a lot of men in there versus women, from what I noticed, or neurosurgery. And um, I've had to navigate it with a lot of men and very few women. But I think the important thing for me, or the reason why I was extremely lucky, was that gender was never a factor my mentors treated me as an equal and they always encouraged me to step up to the equal opportunities that they once grasped. So I never felt like because I was a woman, I couldn't do it. And because they believed in me, I felt like I could do it as well. If there was a job that they felt I should have applied for that other males were applying for, they would call me up and say, you should apply for it. Or we're setting up a conference and we need you on board. And sometimes I was on the list of doctors and I was the only female and you had 10 males up there and I'm the only one there. But I think what I learned from it is that, especially in this field that's dominated heavily with males, as long as you have people around you who believe in what you're doing, that's important. And they respect you for what you're doing. 
So as a woman, I've never used the fact that I was a woman as a ticket that, oh, I expected people to be a little bit more lenient or, you know, they shouldn't be as tough on me. I basically took on the task like other males that are there and competed accordingly. I think that gains you respect as well because they look at you and think, well, if a man can actually do this job, so can a woman. So they can assign you that job. Alongside that, I have to point out that they are female scientists. We have one female scientist in the lab next to us. She actually works on Alzheimer's. Her name's Dr. Alejandra Alonso. She came from Argentina and obviously she's a female minority scientist who's achieved so much. So I look at her path and I see how successful she's been as a female neuroscientist. But most importantly, I look at how she's been able to juggle the other side of her life. Here she is, she's a scientist, she's a chair of the neuroscience department, she's a mother, she's a wife, she does everything, you know, and at the same time she takes Zumba classes. But she's <laughs> I want to be just like that. I want to also be able to have a family, have kids, and still able to be successful in what I do and not use my career as an excuse not to do all those things. I want to be the wife or the mother and I want to be the best mother for my kids. But also a mother who can teach her kids the things that she's learned as well and still maintaining that level and not reducing it and using work as an excuse and saying, well, I can't be home because I'm working or I can't be at the lab because I'm a mom. Looking at her has been really inspirational. The other thing too is that I like to attend a lot of networking conferences or networking events or social events where you see other women who've actually done it before, who are successful. And one of the things that I always recommend is that look at other people who are not in your field. You don't always have to focus on the sciences. See why they've been successful in whatever field that they're working on. How did they get up and pick themselves up and get to the final destination, right? Look at men as well, right? We don't always just have to, to focus on, on women. See what they're doing and we can apply it as well to women. So when I go to these events and I sit, I usually stay behind and speak to the women and ask them questions like, how did you become successful? Why did you follow that path that you followed? And this is where I've been able to get a lot of my inspiration. That's wonderful. And I think looking for those role models and seeing people that have either done bits and pieces of what you're interested in doing, or maybe larger chunks of what you're interested in doing and, and seeing that, oh, okay, it can be done. I don't have to just choose one thing. I don't have to choose being a mom or being a scientist. I really can do both. That's really empowering. Um, absolutely. I feel we should, we should have all of it. Why not? Why should we shortchange ourselves? We could be doctors, we could be scientists, and we could be incredible moms, right? We could do all of that. But I think the important thing is that you have to set those standards, making sure that you target them every single time. So as long as you believe in yourself, other people around you will believe in you. I mean, it just goes without saying. And if you surround yourself with people, these women who have similar vision as well, that's all it takes, right? Because they'll tell you their stories and you look and think, well, if they can do it, so can I, why not, right? So I think that that part's key. Also, I would like to obviously recommend you know, to people to network, 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 network. It's so important. I can't stress it enough because reading a book, yes, it's great. You could read about their biography, but if you meet the person 
it's different. You're actually talking to them one-on-one, you're looking into their eyes, and they can also recommend other things that they didn't put in their books. You get this exclusive one-on-one with that person so they can give you take-home messages that you could take with you. You've given so much great advice over the course of our chat today, and it almost sounds like networking and mentoring and learning from other people is really important to you. So I'm curious what your best piece of advice is for women looking to take their next step forward. My best advice would be to make sure you don't give up on yourself. Look at yourself and look at your dream. Continue dreaming and continue looking at that vision that you've set for yourself so that you could keep pressing forward. I'll give you an example of a friend of mine who, and and of course I've mentioned before that you have to network, 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 because the more you network, the more you'll hear other people's stories or hear how they basically overcame some of their struggles, right? So that for me is extremely important because I do a lot of networking. And also they can open up doors for you as well because they may know someone who can help you as well, or they can suggest a book you could read, for example, or tell you, well, these are the resources you should, uh, you should look at. Right? I bumped into Gabrielle Union once and I asked her, I said, you know, um, I asked her on, this was on a topic about trying to increase funding for minorities. And she said, well, I may not be the person to actually do it for you. However, you could go to X, Y, and Z and you'll be able to get more information from there. So sometimes the individuals you approach may not have the answer, but the good thing is that they will always refer someone else, or they'll point you to some sort of resource that you could look at that could actually help you. All of those are basically taking little bits and pieces and adding them to your toolbox in terms of making success. One of the things I'd like to point out um, about people basically dropping to rock bottom, picking themselves up and making themselves successful, is a friend of mine's story that I would just like to shed light on. This friend of mine, her name is uh, Benita Alexander, she was supposed to get married to this trachea surgeon who was doing research and doing surgeries on individuals. Now, it turned out that the people who he did those surgeries on died, and he didn't do the research he was supposed to. He lied that he was supposed to get married to her. They were supposed to have this huge elaborate wedding, and uh, the Pope was supposed to marry them. John Legend was supposed to be there. All these people booked their tickets to actually go to Rome. And everything basically fell through. But what I want to basically point out here is that she could have just given up. She could have just said, well, this is it for me, right? Because she was this Emmy award-winning journalist who's done so much out there. She's won so many Emmys. And here you are as an investigative journalist. And this individual basically does this to you. But what she did basically was that she wasn't going to give up. She decided that she was going to surround herself with people who would help her get back onto her feet. She was able to reestablish herself. She's become so successful now because she started her own company where she's looking to help other women who've been through these type of cons. The reason why I point her out is that I've learned a lot from her because I see that this is a person who's taken something that went so bad and changed it into something so good. And now she's become a voice for some of these women by trying to help them navigate this tough path that these individuals put them on, but trying to get them out on the other end by giving them advice on how she dealt with her life or her experience. And 
this is what I like about this podcast. So other women can listen to other people's story. I think it's such a brilliant idea because everyone can sample or listen to people's stories and say, well, what worked for that individual? What can I do to help myself? Or yes, that person's in the sciences, but what can I take out of there that could basically help me? Or how can I apply that to my life? So you shouldn't close yourself out to every other person in every other field, but you should look at it and say, what is in there that they have that's similar to what I'm going for that I should grab and learn from it so I could better advance myself? That's great advice. I think that it's not just emulating one person, but it's really looking around and gathering all the information that you can, trying different things and seeing what opens to you. So I think that's really wonderful. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, your podcast will be something that will help a lot of us, right? Because we'll get to hear everyone's stories. So her step forward would be all the women step forward, right? How do we all help each other actually step forward, take that next step onto that next milestone? Exactly. Yes, that is our mission. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant idea. So thank you. Thank you for actually creating that. Oh, thank you. Well, we want to say thank you, of course, to you, Francois, for joining us today and taking the time to share your story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And I'm really looking forward to hearing other women's stories as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. If you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.